Good morning. Our epistle reading is from Hebrews 2, 1 through 18, and this also contains our sermon text today. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord.
Good morning again. Brief apology to anyone who was at the camp out last week because I'm going to repeat one of my illustrations. I apologize for that, but it's very relevant for this morning. So um, give me one moment, and I'm going to get situated here. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these words that we are hearing today. Words that say that you became like one of us, that you suffered for us, that you died for us to pay the price for sins that we could never pay for. You became our great high priest. Thank you. Speak through me this morning, Lord. You know my weaknesses. You know our weaknesses. Please be our strength. Shape us by your words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, one of the most famous quotes that, that, uh, from Carl Sagan, one of the uh, 20th century scientists, he had the, the PBS show called The Cosmos, um, One of his famous quotes that he has about humanity is this. Who are we? We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star, lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of a universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. Not real encouraging, huh? In other words, for Sagan, humans... Our earth is insignificant, insignificant in light of the vast universe in which we live. Sagan also had published, he asked NASA to publish a photograph from Voyager, about 3.5 billion miles away from Earth, showing the earth. And it showed as a, what he calls a pale blue dot suspended in a sunbeam. And that's exactly what it looks like to show how small we are in relation to the vastness of our universe. So I do disagree with with Sagan to say that we are insignificant because we're small. But I do understand what drove him to feel this way. I mean, like any of us, he was struck by the immeasurable as the, as, the hymnal, as the hymnist says, in ineffably sublime nature of the visible universe. And when confronted with its overwhelming size, using illustrations like, like the sun or our galaxy being a grain of sand and the universe being the size of the Sahara Desert, things that we can't even begin to imagine, truly immeasurable, truly things to humble us, to make us think and wonder at what's out there, makes us wonder about the depth of creation, the vastness and the greatness of our creator. But for Sagan, it made him feel how insignificant we were. When we're confronted with greatness, when we're confronted with size, we automatically feel smaller. We automatically feel a little bit like, what am I doing here? What am I doing in, in the midst of this greatness? When we're confronted with the power and magnitude of God's creation, we do rightly feel small. For Sagan, though, that was translated to insignificance 
But the gospel, and really all of God's word, teaches that smallness and weakness really are actually very fitting in the plan of God's redemption for man. Very fitting. The problem with us, though, is we don't like weakness. We don't like humility. We don't like being small in the midst of a crowd. We like to be significant. We like to be known. We like to be thought of as something more than everybody else. There is pride that we are constantly dealing with. We want a bigger and more glorious plan from God than a plan of weakness and smallness. So as we enter into this next section of Hebrews, we're starting with, uh, with verse 5 today. I just wanted the whole chapter read just to kind of remind us of the context. But here again we see angels mentioned. Verse 5 starts talking about angels again. I wonder if perhaps... As I think about this and as we consider the nature of angels, I wonder if perhaps the Hebrews felt that humans, and namely Jesus as a human, were somehow less than angels. That angels were greater than that man who came to earth and suffered and died. Yeah, he did rise again. But angels, when you think of it, angels were never subjected to that kind of humility, that kind of torture and that kind of death to have to go to the cross. As was mentioned in another sermon, angels were glorious heavenly beings that were striking fear in the people they encountered. And yet again, the writer reminds his congregation in verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Remember what he said back in chapter 1. He was, pre- he was presenting Christ. He was presenting him as the Son the son that superseded all angels, all prophets, the one whom God spoke through and the one who actually inherited the name, the name that was above all names, the name that the Jews would not even mention, that Jesus, the son, inherited that name. And by his word, he holds all things together. So he was holding him up in his exalted state. And it was not by angels that these things were held together. It was not by angels. The angels were not the radiance of the glory of God. So now, in this section, if you notice, he starts shifting gears and shifting directions about who Christ is. I like how he introduces this this quote from Psalm 8. He says in verse 6, It was testified somewhere. It's kind of nice that even perhaps this reader didn't know his book, chapter, and verse. But he knew it was in there. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Now this is David writing this psalm out of Psalm 8. And he's writing in the context of observing God's creation, looking up into the stars, marveling at Yahweh's overwhelming creation. He's looking up, and then he's looking out, and then he's looking down. And he's wondering, what is man? Who are we? This question comes out of the human response when we look at ourselves and we say, do we have any significance in the plan of God? Why is he even considering us? David probably felt this feeling of insignificance as well. But he knew the God who created him, and he knew that God had him in his plan. But he still looked up and said, why? Why are you considering us, God? 
Perhaps he felt that it was not fitting that Yahweh should consider somebody as sinful as him. That he would consider somebody as sinful as, as, the, as the human race and, and what he would see in humanity. That Yahweh would actually have a mind for us. And he says this in verse 7, You made him a little while, for a little while lower than the angels. But then here we go back up. And you crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, this is one of those things that we, we think about. Is this talking about Christ or is this talking about us? Well, as, as we said with some of these psalms, they look back and they look ahead. So, yes, they are speaking of man. They're speaking of humanity. That humanity was made a little lower than the angels. Some versions say a little lower than God. Some say a little lower than the heavenly beings. But a little lower is how God made man and women. Lower than the angels. Well, how did he crown us with glory? Well, we have the glory of God and having the image of God in us. And also, in in Genesis, God subjected all things to Adam and Eve. You have dominion over the earth, over the birds of the air, the, the fish of the sea, and the creatures. You will have dominion. But did everything get put in subjection? Was everything under control by mankind? No. We tend to see the smallness or the weakness as characteristics that destroy the value and worth of a person. But as we can see here in the heart of the gospel itself, it's the plan of Yahweh to first bring humanity through this place of humility. It's the plan of Yahweh to bring glory through weakness. Smallness was the path to significance, and still is. Weakness is the path to power in the plan of redemption of our Lord. So we see, so what we'll see for the rest of this passage as we continue to go through through to verse 18 is we're going to see the writer to the Hebrews kind of expositing this psalm, these verses in this psalm, explaining what it means. And what we're going to see is it was fitting. He's saying that it was fitting in the plan of God for the Savior, for this Son that was exalted and holds all things together, was also fitting for him to be a suffering servant. It was fitting in the plan of God for him to be a sibling. And it was fitting in the plan of God for him to be a sacrifice. So we're looking at verse 8, second part of verse 8. He says, Now in putting everything in subjection, after he quotes Psalm 8 here, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now he's talking about Christ. He put nothing outside his control. And this is interesting. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I'm sure the Hebrews were thinking that. What do you mean everything's in control? What do you mean he's got everything held together by the word of his power? Do you know what's about to happen to us? Do you know who's ruling the Roman Empire right now? What do you mean he's got everything under control? And if this is a word of comfort, it's this. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We have in theology, we talk about the already and the not yet. Things that God is doing, things that God has done, things that we observe in the present time. But then there's a not yet aspect of the promise of God. Things that he has done, he has accomplished redemption, but he will accomplish ultimate redemption in the last day. 
It's the same way as what Paul says to the Ephesians. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, he's talking about what Christ did for us. He says, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, I see where we're all seated this morning. We're not seated in the heavenly places. Do you feel like you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places? Do we see this at present? No, at present, we do not realize this yet. But there is an already aspect of that in the sense that Christ has been raised and is seated with the Father. And because we are in Christ, positionally, we are with him, with the Father. There is a sense of who we are in Christ is seated with him. And what he's saying here is, yes, everything is under control. Everything is in Christ's control. And it may not look like it yet because it is not completed yet. We have not experienced the not yet aspect of God's promise. The plan and the promise, they're just not complete yet. You Hebrews, you're still suffering. You're still under the rule of a tyrant And we don't see the sun crushing the head of the serpent yet. He says this in verse 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. One thing to point out here, you know, we talked about the name that is above every name, that he talked about Jesus in in his exalted state in, in the first chapter. You know, this is the first time he uses the name Jesus in this book. Chapter 2, verse 9. When he's speaking about him in his lower state, when he's speaking about him as a human, he uses his human name, Jesus. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, the one who descended to this smallness, to this small stature, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is probably not the kind of Savior that the Hebrews were hoping for. One that was saving through suffering and through death. God's plan doesn't make sense to his people. Not always, anyway. Sometimes we can look at it on paper and think, this, this, yes, this makes sense. But in the midst of things that happen to us, we think, God, what are you doing? Lord, why are we going through this? Why are we suffering in this way? We want to see what's fitting to our plan. We want to say, Lord, this fits me. This fits what we want. Perhaps they wanted to see some angel defend them. You know, when we think again about the angels and about how he's contrasting Jesus with the angels. Think about what the angels did. We thought we talked about the angels' presence, but think about what the angels did. The angel of God that came and struck the firstborn of the Egyptians so that they could be delivered. Back at Sodom and Gomorrah, the the, the angels who came to be with Lot struck the men blind who wanted to take his daughters. 2 Kings 19, we see an angel. At that night, it says, at that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 angels in the camp of the Assyrians. Now, this is real justice. This is what we want. We want the angels wreaking havoc on our enemies. Jesus himself said, I could have, if I wanted to come down from the cross, I could have called legions of angels to come rescue me. 
And regarding the final judgment, he says this in in Matthew 13. He says, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Angels were bringing the wrath of God. Angels were bringing justice on God's enemies. Christ wasn't doing that. He was healing the blind. He was forgiving sins. He was healing the crippled. Beautiful things. Bringing the kingdom of God to bear on the earth, but he wasn't knocking out the enemies. In fact, he gave himself to them freely. Is this the Savior we want? Would God conquer this way through the Savior, through Christ himself? No. Well, not yet at least. Not yet. So the writer says it was fitting for the Son of God, the one who inherited the name, it was fitting for him to suffer. And he says this exactly in verse 10. He says, for it was fitting. This is the same way that that Paul says to the, um, let's see if I still have it here. Yeah, when he says, but sexual immorality, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper or as is fitting among saints. This word fitting, it's what is appropriate, what fits with how you should be conducting yourself. And so in this case here, in verse 10, it's how God conducts himself, how God is carrying out his plan. And he's saying it is fitting, what is fitting with God's plan is that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, how? Through suffering. That he should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, the Son, perfect or complete. That word perfect means complete. And he's going to do it through suffering. Surely they had to be familiar with, with Isaiah's passage in 53 of the suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And with him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That there was suffering that had to be done according to the plan of God. This was what was fitting for the Christ. It was fitting for our Savior to be a suffering servant. And then he goes on in verse 11. It was fitting for our Savior that he should be counted as a sibling. Now, I'm using S words here, but this sounds even more personal to me than, than a brother. That he should be counted as a sibling, as one of us. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Jesus, the one who sanctifies, and the one, us, the ones, believers in Christ, who are sanctified, we all have one source. He's equalizing, the the author here is equalizing us with Christ. He's equalizing humans with Christ. That one source, commentators are divided. It could be be Yahweh as, as their source. Yahweh said, this is my son, today I've begotten you. And we have our source in, in Yahweh as well. Or it could be Adam. That as a human, Christ descended from Adam. As is said in the genealogy, they connect him, his human side, with Adam. 
or it could be with Abraham. Either way, the point is that Christ has the same source as his brothers and his sisters. He has a same source. There is a connection to the source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Isn't that amazing? That the one that we just heard about a few weeks ago in chapter 1, the one who is holding all things together by the word of his power, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of who he is, the one who created the entire universe that Carl Sagan makes us, says makes us feel insignificant, and rightly so. He is not ashamed. By the way, the sinless one is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Think about the thoughts that have gone on in your head. Think about the dark thoughts. Think about the dark things you've done. Our Lord is not afraid or not ashamed to call you. If you call on him, he is not ashamed to call you brother, sister. Isn't that wild? There's got to be a better word for that, but it is wild. And the author supports this with Psalm 22. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. As Christ speaking, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, and again, when, as he's connecting these, these verses, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Those two, those last two in 13 come from Isaiah 8, it's believed. Isaiah 8, 17, I believe. All this section is about Jesus, our Lord and Savior, coming down and identifying with the least of these, that being us, you and me, those of us who call upon his name. He is identifying with us. One of the, the, the top commentators on the book of Hebrews, William Lane, says this, the fact that Jesus' confidence was fully vindicated after he had experienced suffering and affliction assured them, assured the Hebrews, that they could also trust God in difficult circumstances. The idea of the writer here is to show them the Savior who has come through this. He suffered, was, was put to death, and rose again. It should give them confidence, he's saying, and assure them that they could also trust God because he entrusted himself to the Father completely. They can also entrust themselves. We can also entrust ourselves. That's the purpose of why he is telling us this as he writes. It was fitting that the sovereign son became one of us, that he became flesh and dwelt among us, as John says in chapter 1 of John, of the book of John. And he could relate to us, living on the same soil, dwelling in the same land, dealing with the same temptations, the same circumstances, the same sufferings that he could relate to us. And he wasn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Lastly, it was also fitting that he became the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice for us. 
Actually, if we look at this in uh, verse 14 here and on, he was the sacrifice and the sacrificer. The priest and the sacrifice. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, Well, before he was coming down as, a, as one of us, next he's, he's suffering. Now it's through the path of death. That through death, what would he do? He might destroy the one who has the power of death. Nero? No. No. That is the devil. And deliver all those through fear, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you think they could relate to what they're experiencing right now? Those who, through the fear of death, were, were subject to a lifelong slavery. In verse 16, he, he closes out this angel theme. He says, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps not the angels. The angels are the messengers. The angels are the, are, are, are the ones that God uses for, as his ministers. It's not them that he helps. It's not them that he has come to redeem. He has come to redeem the offspring of Abraham, you and me, those who have called upon the name of Jesus. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. That's that word again. We've seen that in Romans. Uh, we see, I, I believe it's um, it First John, I believe. Um, that word is atonement or paying the satisfactory payment, the payment that settles the debt, settles everything. The only payment that could be made, it's Christ's blood, makes propitiation for the sins of the people. These last two verses really sum up the gospel. 17 and 18, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. I think about when, back in, in verse 16 here in 15, he says that he came to deliver all those who through the fear, or I'm sorry, in, in verse 14, he says that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Well, I'm sure that raises more questions for the Hebrews. If he died, and, and in dying, he conquered the power of death, and the one who has power over death, why are we still afraid of dying? Why are we still afraid of Nero coming and getting us and killing us and, and, and destroying us? Once again, he has destroyed the power of death. But have we seen the, all of the benefits of that? Have we seen the results of death being destroyed once and for all? He says, no. We have not seen that. As I was thinking about this, it's like, is there any wonder that this book also has one of the most significant chapters on faith? That this is about believing 
that what God is doing, he is doing for our good and for his glory, and that he will do it in his time. That although it doesn't seem right, it doesn't seem fitting that, that his Savior, that he would come to earth and become one of us and, and suffer and then, and then also become one of, one of us, that he would call us brothers and sisters. And then that he would go to the cross and become not only the sacrifice, but the one who offers the sacrifice. He offered himself. That doesn't make sense. It's not fitting with my plan but it's fitting with God's plan. It's fitting that God would have the path to power be weakness, that the path to greatness would be humility. Later on, he says in, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. John Calvin says, For it's a rare thing for those who are always happy to be able to sympathize with the sorrows of others. Jesus didn't come and live in this protected cell. He, was, he came and be a, was a part of life and suffered the same things we suffered and even worse And he did that, that he may be a high priest who was able to sympathize, able to sympathize with our weaknesses, and one who in every respect was tempted yet without sin. Where are you suffering this morning, this year? What enemy are you dealing with currently? What has you feeling overwhelmed and defeated, depressed? Sickness? Loss of any kind? The weight of injustice? Wouldn't it be great to have some angel come down and bring the justice we want? The justice we've been longing for to bring the healing we've been crying for? Wouldn't that be great? to have the peace we've been hoping for? Wouldn't it be great just to have some angel come down and do that for us? Well, it sure feels like it would. But it's not fitting to the plan of God. It's not fitting. What is fitting? Remind me of the words of Paul. As he was dealing with an enemy. Second Corinthians 12. He says this, I know a man in Christ, speaking of himself, who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be uttered. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I won't boast. Though if I wished to, be, to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. And then he goes on to say this. To keep me from boasting, the Lord gave me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, an enemy that was harassing him, an enemy that was causing him to suffer. We don't know what that is, but it was causing him suffering. And he pleaded three times, 
three times with the Lord about this. This is the Apostle Paul pleading with the Lord, take this away. But he didn't. It wasn't fitting. What was fitting was the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is perfected in your weakness. You want to experience my power, Paul. You have to accept the weakness I'm giving you. It is, my, it is your weakness in which my power is going to be displayed. I can't imagine that was easy to hear at first. But Paul finally came to a place where he said, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Brothers and sisters, may God help us to embrace this path of weakness. May we be encouraged, believing of what is fitting for our Lord's plan, that the path to power, the path to redemption is through weakness, humility, and resting on his power, because he is perfect. He is our great high priest. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we can boldly approach your throne and have confidence because you, our great high priest, offered your blood and died for us. Help us to embrace that, Lord. Give us faith to believe when we are feeling defeated when we want and cry out for another plan, a different plan, Father, help us to cling to you in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our weakness. Help us to trust you. Increase our faith. Change us, but hold us tightly, we pray. It's in Christ's name. Amen.